Okay, um, so we are on Acts chapter 5. Um, we have been working through Acts because we wanted to look at a book that would help us to get some you know, foundational understandings of you know, our culture, our DNA as a growing family of people. When you start a new church, um, which I've been involved in a handful of times, it's a massive opportunity to get a blank sheet of paper and say, you know, what are we actually about? What, what does scripture inform us you know, about our character, the way we operate together, the way we live together, you know, what we understand about God, how we worship him, all of that stuff. And, and it's an opportunity, to be honest with you, for us all to learn afresh together. I think, I think that's a very key thing. Um, for myself, you know, I've been leading Christian communities for nearly 20 years, but I'm looking at stuff in a fresh way as I do this, thinking, again, you know, I don't want to take anything for granted. And I think perhaps one of the, the most powerful things that we can do as a growing family of people is to be saying to Holy Spirit, you know, please teach me new things. You know, never, never lose the ability to learn new things or, or, or grow an ability to get into unlearning. Now, be good at unlearning. I think that's a really important thing to do as well. Because we can accumulate stuff along the way which might not actually be good stuff. Well, we think it's good stuff, but actually it's not. And the more and more you get into unlearning, the more and more you realise there's a massive difference between what we might call churchianity and Christianity. Now, we have a lot of embedded traditions and what we might call religion, that we actually start to think is deeply biblical and kingdom. But it's not. Like, for instance, organ music. <laughs> well, it's not in the Bible. It's amazing how precious people get about it. You know, uh, the way you take up an offering, even the way the chairs are set out. I mean, they can be amazing strongholds. It's amazing. How many people can be worshipping God together and then row about the car parking? It's incredible. So we have these embedded cultural things that happen within our hearts. So I think a new church, particularly where people have been going to church, need to previously need to get very good at unlearning. So as I'm approaching this passage today, I am I am trying to do that as well as I've looked at this with a with a heart that says I I don't want to think that I know everything about this. You know, please teach me fresh stuff here. And help me to be vulnerable and humble enough that I might need to unlearn some stuff that I thought that I held very dearly at some point. You see what I mean? I think if we all do that, then I think that, that makes church an incredible adventure. If we bring all our baggage with us, it just becomes Heathrow Terminal 5 on a really bad day. And everyone gets grumpy, you know. So I don't think we, we want to do that, do we? We want to be open, I believe, to what we think the Holy Spirit is saying. I think that creates a family of people that God is more able to use. And it makes it really exciting. And when we get things wrong, because we will make mistakes, because people make mistakes. I think I made a mistake once in 1979. I remember it. People make mistakes. And when you, when you do, that's a great opportunity not to beat each other up, but just say, that's cool. Now we'll learn from that and we'll move on. So... That's the heartbeat. So the passage here, following on from the Ananias and Sapphira passage that Dan spoke on, we're moving on from people being struck dead by the presence of God into now the, the opposite, which is God healing people. 
They're amazing how scripture works like that, isn't it? One minute struck dead, next minute people getting healed. I mean, it's quite, and when you read scripture, you think, wow, I'm, I'm there and I'm over there. And, you know, you've got power and weakness, you've got glory and suffering. It's all mixed in, which is quite an important thing as well. I think what it teaches us is it's good to have a balanced view of scripture. I think as soon as you start saying, God only ever does this, or everybody's going to be like that, or we, we, you know, this is a sickness-free zone, no one ever gets sick in this church, you start to become a little bit unhinged. I was in a church once, where I walked in, and I had, I had a bit of man flu. Now that is a cut above a normal cold. That is, that is like, well we should talk about it in hushed tones. Women don't understand it, but I think you're only just above life support. When that happens, the only solution is a cup of soup and some beavers. That's it, it's the only thing you've got going through. And you might pull through. Now I had a bit of man flu, and I walked into a, a big church um, where I was going to be speaking, and I was, I was, it was a dodgy time, I didn't know if I was going to make it. I, some of the blokes are pitching in for my car and my possessions, so I didn't know if I was going to make it to next Thursday. And when I went in there, the, the other pastor was there, and he said, Hello, Beachy. I went, oh, man, I feel really ill. And he went, no, you don't. I went, no, I do. He said, you don't. I said, no, I really do. He said, no, you don't, you're healed. I went, no, I'm not. I feel terrible. And he went, no, you're speaking illness over yourself. I said, no, I'm not. I'm just not very well. Let me just be sick. And he went, no, you're not. You're fully healed. Because Jesus has taken care of it at the cross. I was, you're mad. I can barely speak. And he said, that's because you're accepting it into your spirit. And I think, no. No. Every now and again, a bloke's got to feel a little bit ill. It's all right to feel a little bit sorry for yourself for half an hour. Otherwise, you just live in denial, don't you? You're just living a life of denial, and everyone gets massively stressed out. So I want you to know as well that I'm on a journey with this, that when we read about this healing stuff, which we will do in about two minutes' time, have a balanced view in your head and in your heart. Now, we are saying here, and you've heard Dan say it already when we preached earlier in Acts, we are a church that believes for healing. You can't have a good theology of healing unless you've got a good understanding of suffering. So if you've got a cold this morning, it's okay. I'm not going to be condemning you for your lack of faith. But we do need to open our hearts and say, if God is saying this happens, how do we understand it best? And how do we practice this and not just talk about it? I just want to lay that kind of stuff out there right at the start. We're a church that believes for it. We understand that there's complexity and, and the world is suffering when there are moments of glory that pour in and that's wonderful. Uh, I started my Christian walk at the age of 18 uh, believing that God didn't do anything. And we lived and we suffered and then we died and we went to heaven. I didn't particularly believe that God spoke other than through the word. I didn't believe that people got healed. I didn't believe that there are gifts such as tongues or words of knowledge or prophecy. Things happened to me that made me revise my position. And that came from reading the Bible and it came from experiences. I'm going to try and navigate both of those with you in under 90 minutes right now. Okay. <laughs> Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them 
even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Just a quick word on that, verse 13 there. I, I, I just perceive that that means that, you know, there was such a tremendous move of God taking place. And the apostles are moving in such what we might call an anointing of God. His spirit is resting on us so powerfully. I mean, they've just seen people struck dead, you know, for, for not quite handling the offering properly. I think, you know, if Simon Peter was your pastor, you'd, 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 you know, you'd keep a distance. <laughs> you know, you'd be a little bit nervous. Just to say that Dan and I don't perceive ourselves in quite the same way, and uh, we're quite open for a chat any time. Uh, you know, I think this is a unique move of God. These are apostles with capital A letters at the beginning of their name. You know, this is, this is big stuff. This is a unique and special time. So people are looking at them and thinking, these, these men are just awesome. There is something resting upon them which we can't even begin to fathom. And that's scary stuff. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, despite their scariness, basically, and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on bed and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, as I started to read this over and over and over again, my mind did cast back to Acts chapter 2 when we looked at that. And if you remember in the Acts chapter 2, around verse 42, it says, everyone was filled with awe. And that really stood out to me. Everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. Interesting. And you've got this little thing in here. No one else dared join these guys, but loads of people were being healed. So I just started to think again about the way that Jesus operates in all of this. And just as a reference point for us right at the start, that intriguing verses in Matthew 13. Uh, verse, well, let's take from verse 53. Uh, I'll read this to you. When Jesus had finished his parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and his miraculous powers, I asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? When, when then did this man get all these things? I don't know if they're saying, look at the rest of them, they're rubbish. So how did he turn out like that? I think there's a bit of it going, a bit of that going on there. And then they took offence at him. Amazing. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour, except in his own town, and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. That's interesting. You get the same account in Mark 6, 5, but he said all he was able to do in Mark 6, he said, is lay hands on some of them and they were healed. But he was amazed at their lack of faith. But then you go back and you've got this very intriguing encounter in Luke 8. So something happens here which enables us to put some flesh on the bones of an argument I'm going to try and present to you. Um, look at this. This is in 
Luke chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you, and we are bringing your own Bible church, so I think there's normally a few at the back. Um, here we go. So Jesus has just had the, the woman who's bleeding touch him. And then we move on, verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. Bit of a statement. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and a child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told her to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Interesting. You've got a crowd of people who are overcome by grief and sadness. Jesus proclaims something of the kingdom. This is, this, is, this is not what you think it is. She's not dead. She's asleep. You watch. They all start laughing at him. So who does he take into the scene where there is healing? He didn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James. Interesting. He moves around into some places and he can't do miracles. People don't like him, people are not honouring him, they have a lack of faith, there's no miracles happening. He just lays hands on a few people. When he's in this situation with Joseph's daughter, he just takes in a few people. In Acts 2, where there's this phenomenal move of God, what is the preference? Everyone was filled with awe. In Acts chapter 5, this astonishing move of God, what does it say? People are just filled with this, this sense of fear of God, this awe. You start to join the dots up. So many times, as I started to move into what we call charismatic circles of church, you'd pray for people, and, and, and the person praying would be saying to someone, I mean, let's say that, you know, you've got man flu, and I, and I, I say I'm going to pray for you. The, the classic thing would be to say, if you have faith, you will be healed. Hard to have faith in a scenario like I just presented to you. But if you have faith, you'll be healed. Now, I'm not sure that I always see that in Scripture. You do, but you see something else as well. Jesus was able to perform miracles, and the apostles performed miracles, where there was a community that was filled with awe and faith. Now, I've often thought, it's a little bit harsh to put on a bloke with man flu, he's got to have faith. Now, we do expect that people have faith when we pray for them, and that is a biblical precedent. But today, I want to examine this whole idea of what it looks like to be a community that's filled with awe and wonder. Because I think that's something different. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a community of Christians, a family of believers, that when they gather together, there is an incredible sense of expectancy, and not just about the coffee. Not just about the fact that we like Gaz's worship leading. Or it's a nice chit-chat afterwards. Wouldn't it be amazing if 
we carried within us and through the week this deep abiding sense of a, a sense of awe at the wonder and majesty of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I think that when we carry that, when a community carries that, and the leaders don't just carry that for you, but we all carry that, or the majority of people carry that, that is incredibly attractive, not only to other people, but it pleases the Holy Spirit. I think, I believe, it creates some kind of pathway by which the Holy Spirit can begin to bless people. Because he's not being grieved, he's being honoured, and people have this sense of awe. I remember the first time I started to pray for people, it was in Billericay Baptist Church. The first time I actually had, I dared to begin to lay hands on people and pray for them to be healed. And I was in my early 20s, and I was a, a new elder, and I had a senior pastor who was a very charismatic individual in terms of his theology and in personality, and he'd lay hands on the sick and pray for them. So I thought, well, I, I you know, I have seen the Bible, I'll have a little go. I mean, I'll have a little go. So you... I'd lay hands on people and pray for them and nothing would happen. You know, so being a young man, you then try different stances or, you know, you find yourself grimacing, you know, so you're... <laughs> you know, or I think, well, if I touched them on the head, that would be better than the shoulder. Or then I'd view people had other techniques, but they'd hold people's hands and pray for the anointing. So I tried all these things and nothing was happening. So I can just say now, the different styles of laying hands on people don't have medical significance or spiritual significance as far as I'm aware, but the Bible does say lay hands. Uh, what I would say is be, be discreet and appropriate. But, you know, I don't think there's particular techniques. Uh, I've learned that. However, there was a moment when I was praying for someone, and for one of the first times ever, other than the time when God really met with me when I was being a bit misbehaving when I was about 18, I had this incredible sense of an invasion of God's spirit in the church around me. And I looked up, this was all in my mind's eye, I looked up and it was as if the ceiling of the church had been ripped off. And I was looking up into the universe. It was all in my mind's eye, but it was one of those moments where all the sounds got drowned out around you. And I was looking up and I... In my mind's eye, I could see, the, you know, not the whole universe, but I could see, you know, stars and stuff. And I was looking up, and I, and I deep inside, I had this impression of the Holy Spirit saying to me, you know, just want to remind you, son, it's not you who does it, it's me. And I, I'm feeling all these tears started streaming down my cheeks. I mean, it's incredible. It's a holy encounter, really. And I suddenly felt overcome by... A, kind of a sense of holy awe. And, and I hadn't really prayed for this person. Um, and I can't even remember the condition that they had or what they were asking prayer for. But I remember looking at them and they were crying. And I knew that God had touched them. And it started to change things for me. And over time, as I started to step out praying for people and believing that God could and would do things today, slowly but surely, my faith started to grow. Now, sometimes in church, uh, you see people doing what I call windmilling in the worship. They're forming human windmills. And some people raise their hands like this, and some people have their hands at the side, some people have their hands out in front of them. 
Some people do expressive dancing, which is not why we're moving into the bigger hall, because mm -hmm. we have band. It's in our constitution. <laughs> and you think, why are these people? Why are these people worshipping in such a weird way? Why are they windmilling? You know, when I first started seeing that in charismatic churches, I used to say like this, charismatic churches. <laughs> you know, I think, I'd watch a hand go up and I think, there's another one. You know, another nutter. You know, I'd have unholy thoughts. You know, I'd see people windmilling and I'd think they're going to poke someone's eye out. I'd be watching to see what would happen. And then so I'd be having mild amusement. You'd see someone stretch their hand out like that and smack someone in the head. You know, and I, it used to amuse me. Then what are you doing? You're weird. But after that moment, I can almost remember the first time. After that moment, the first time I raised up my hands to God. i tell you why I did it. I humbled myself. I had an incredible sense of awe. And I was just reaching out to him. And kind of feeling embarrassed about it didn't matter anymore. Sometimes we don't pray for people because we're embarrassed. Sometimes we don't share our faith because we're embarrassed. Sometimes we don't express ourselves in worship because we're embarrassed. That's kind of strange. Now, I'm not saying that you must all put your hands in the air. Because if I'm honest with you, sometimes when I'm worshipping, I do look like a tombstone. <laughs> there is a lot going on in my heart, sometimes. But sometimes I do just look miserable. But inside, very happy. <laughs> so I'm not saying this is a prescriptive thing. I'm saying that where there is a sense of awe and wonder, you do tend to see a move of the Holy Spirit. I will tell you a story that I said to Dan before we started the service today. I was in two minds ready to share this on. I've been graced to see over time, over a large number of years now, a handful of times where I've seen a move of God's Spirit which is when I think about them, it can still move me to tears and still make me think, what is this? And, and you have to be careful with stuff like this. So very often before I've said some of these illustrations, particularly when they happened years ago, I've emailed people where there were witnesses and said, can you just recount to me what you remember seeing on that day? Because I think you've got to please the Holy Spirit, right? I believe that. I don't, exaggeration don't help, lying don't help, and displeases God. So I'm going to tell you these things over the years as we journey together, hopefully with a deep sense of integrity with as much accuracy as possible. One time when I was ministering in India in Hyderabad, it was during the time when the BJP were the ruling party, and it was a very intimidating time for Christians. They were trying to shut down Christian worship, they were militant Hindus, and Christians were worshipping in compounds. I was being driven around in a jeep that had blacked out windows, which I thought was really cool to put like a special forces undercover pastor. And that was quite intimidating. And they were having a meeting in a walled-off compound. And there were about 500 to 600 people in this meeting. It was an evangelistic rally where they'd invited in people from other faiths too. There were Hindus there, there were some Muslims there, and there was a large number of Christians. And I'm preaching with an interpreter. And as I'm preaching, there's a commotion about two-thirds of the way back in this open-air courtyard, it's like a walled-off compound, open-air courtyard, all lit up. There's a big commotion. 
So I kept on preaching, being a professional, the show must go on, and the commotion gets worse and worse and worse. And it's almost like in the back two thirds of the compound, there's a crowd hysteria breaking out. So we stopped the meeting, and I said to Prem, my friend, and I was there with two other pastors from the UK, um, shall we go and see what's happening? So the worship band started getting some worship music, and we got off the stage, and we went to where a bloke was lying on the floor, uh, stiff as a ball. And um, we said through the interpreter what's happened, and the answer came back, he's dead. We said, how do you know he's dead? He said, he's not breathing. <laughs> thought, that's a giveaway. Now, we don't know what's happening. All we do know at that particular point is that a bunch of guys started trying to drag his body out of the compound to dump him on the road outside. So they're pulling his legs in, and they're dragging the body through the dirt. Now, he could have just been unconscious, but he did look a little bit lifeless because he weren't free. So they're dragging his body out. So we said, why are you dragging his body out? They said, if the authorities see that someone is dead in the church, or use as an excuse to shut the church down. So we said, well, you can't dump his body outside. You can't just, it's like, drag his body outside, we'll just carry on. You can't do that. We don't know who he is. Oh, that's fine then. You know, dump the body outside. So the scenario unfolded like this. There's a group of guys dragging his legs. And my mate Alan is now trying to pull his arms back to stop them from pulling the guy out. I find myself standing either side of him, holding onto his chest, pressing down, trying to stop them dragging the body. It's complete chaos. I mean, can you imagine the people are pressing him here, they're jostling you, and it's all very unpleasant, and it's getting a little bit dodgy. Long story short, in the middle of it, we all start praying for God to help us. And I can't remember the exact prayers. We didn't say be raised from the dead. I mean, we weren't even sure he was dead. He just did look a bit lifeless and all that stuff. So as we were doing this, and Alan was praying in tongues, a guy called Jamie's praying, and I'm praying to help, help, let God touch his life, you know, and help us here. This guy suddenly takes his massive breath like this. He goes, <gasps> like that, in the middle of us praying. And started to struggle to push himself up. And he's going, <laughs> like this. The crowd saw this and went, ah, <laughs> like this. And they all moved back. So it's like a seething crowd pressing in. And they all moved back. And then we help this guy up. And we put our arms around him. And within a few minutes, he's standing up. Three women come over. And we say to each other, who are the women? So it's his wives. He's a Muslim guy with several wives. So I think this is now pastorally confusing. I'm a bit, I'm a bit culturally struggling here. To cut a lot of detail out, it ended up that night that those three wives gave their lives to Christ. Deal with that in a pastoral situation. A load of the crowd came to Christ. Somebody else carried on preaching because I, I wasn't totally up for it. So one of the Indian guys carried on preaching. And they made an evangelistic appeal. And I would say over half the people came forward. Now, I don't know how many of them were first-time believers. I have no idea. But I do know that they were still worshipping a good two, three hours later. And you would, wouldn't you? Now, I don't know what that was. But I do know that those people prayed 
every single day for a good couple of hours. Worship was a lifestyle. They memorised the scriptures. Fasting was a lifestyle. A sense of awe was definitely in their churches. You walked into those churches and they would have a kid on the bongos, they would have a rope of guitar and they worshipped their hearts out. I mean, man, did they worship. I mean, really. You look at their faces, you see like tears streaming down their faces. They love God so much. And I just simply believe that when you see a community of awe and a sense of wonder at the majesty of God, just maybe God is able to use our hearts and use a growing faith to see people blessed and touched. Now, God is sovereign. We can't do anything apart from Him. I understand. He is the healer. He is the creator. He is the one who sustains us nanosecond by nanosecond. Absolutely. If it wasn't for his grace, we wouldn't be able to sit here or even have an opinion on what I'm saying. We are sustained by his grace moment by moment. But it is a profound mystery that somehow he chooses to work through our faith and our belief and our love and devotion of him. Does it mean that we're trying to create a church where people collapse in a service and they're always resurrected. Well, great though it would be, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it would be great if the DNA of our church was joy, generosity, wonder, fear of God. Holy fear of God. You know, sometimes people have said to me, what is it that, that sustains you? over many years of ministry of disappointments, man. I mean, disappointments and victories all mixed in. And I can trace it back to a foundational moment I was telling my daughters about. And Karen, Karen has reminded me earlier that when I was 18, I gave my life to Christ. When I was 18 and a half, I decided I wasn't really living for Christ. Lasted six months. I was at uni, doing an engineering degree, and I was hanging out with people who liked a bit of cannabis and like getting a bit drunk. Well, not a bit drunk, like absolutely tripped and high. Now, I wasn't a big drugs guy. And I, you know, I remember a joint was being passed around to me and I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just have a go. And I had one puff and I immediately felt absolutely nauseous. Absolutely sick. And I went into the bathroom, and it was a scummy, horrible toilet. Horrible. And I looked at myself in the mirror. And I tell you what, I never felt fear like it. Immediately sensed the presence of God enter that scummy, horrible bathroom. And I can remember vividly getting on my knees in front of a holy God in front of a horrible, unwashed basin, in front of a holy God, and, and not even wanting to dare to lift my head up. And sensing the Holy Spirit saying to me, Son, you were know, you worth dying for, but you don't need to live like this. And I ran out of that party, 
the upshot was I'd started going out with Karen, and then she 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 dumped me. Isn't that terrible? She thinks I deserved it. But the upshot of it was I immediately went back to Karen and used him my smooth ways. Managed to charm her back. Now married 21 years with two teenage daughters. It was that moment of awe in front of my holy God that is, I think, one of those things, one of those things, that has both sustained me and encouraged me to step out of faith. But I'm going to stop there because we're going to worship. And you see, the emphasis I'm preaching on is really this sense of what is happening here. Why are people throwing themselves in front of Peter's shadow? Maybe it weren't a shadow. It was a desperation to meet with God. As close as we can get, we'll get. There's something about these friends. I just want to be near to God. I want him to touch my life. They didn't have super drug or boots of chemist or... Thankfully, we were at church with a couple of medics in case there's an emergency. That's, that's a really good thing. Because <laughs> we need both to be. But amazing. Oh, desperation. Father, I just want to be close to you. I see what these guys are moving in. I, I, if I could touch their shadow, I'd meet with you. Wouldn't it be amazing if a church could carry something of that? That'd be amazing. That's what we're striving for. A sense of wonder. Not childishness, childlike faith. Let's do some unlearning, some of the stuff we've known in the past. Relearn what it means to be a child of God. Full of wonder. Amazement of who 